Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken. And this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. Yeah. And there was big, big, big news today. Tucker Carlson, the evil non-journalist, was fired. I hear this is the third time he's been fired from a cable news channel. Hmm. And I never watch him. But of course, since MSNBC is so obsessed (sighs) with him, I would see clippings for people who don't know who he is he's just a lying racist misogynistic he's horrible lying you know he's the one who said that january 6th was just a tourist visit and all sorts of other i don't even want to go into but one of the things that i think of whenever i see him especially when he's doing his horrible anti-trans stuff is how his father was the reporter in that documentary lady in the yes me too i think of that and just destroyed that person's life Yes. Be, because of his anti-trans thing. So the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And we had a little laugh earlier today when the Bangor Daily News put out a headline, Mainer loses TV job. <laughs> I think they were trying to be funny, like when Trump, I can't remember which thing it happened in the New York Daily News had like Florida man. Oh, yeah. Oh, maybe. Whatever. Yeah. So I think they were trying to be funny. I mean, they know who Tucker, but he does have a vacation home in Bryant Pond. Yes, in Western he does. Maine. He had way too much power. And the the funny thing is they were just talking before I turned off the TV that probably what did it isn't the $787 million that Fox just had to pay Dominion, the election machine company <sighs> for defamation, but that producer of his uh, woman filed a suit saying it was a misogynistic hostile workplace. And it's not that obviously, yeah, what a surprise. It's obviously not that Fox would fire him because they care about that. Just like with Bill O'Reilly, it's because that suit as it plays out would expose their dirty laundry. Yeah. Well, we've already heard a lot of it. I'm sure he will get back on his feet. Probably Newsmax or someone like that will hire him. So I have an update, but before that, I just have something I needed to tell you and see what you think. All right. I want to know why, maybe our listeners could give me some insight on this, Mm. why straight women keep falling in love with me. I have had, today was another one. You're my sister. I'm talking about clients I've had. Are you sure they're in love with you or? They're obsessed with me. You are very compelling. One woman told a co-worker a few years ago that I wish she was a man so I could marry her. This is the first I think I've heard of this. And now today I have a customer that I have been working with for several years because she supposedly can't make up her mind, but she is obsessed with me. And that's why she can't make up her mind. Uh, yes, because she, she, if she it, once she makes up her mind and makes a purchase, she'll then no longer she'll have, a... have no relationship left with me. I've got nothing because as you know, everybody hates me. Oh, except for, except for and really disgusting like men. My, well, my I just think it's anyway. weird. It is weird. But... I, I'll have to think about it because you've kind of thrown me a curveball there. My only theory would be that they have awful husbands and all their friends are well, like really boring people no really can i finish my you wanted my opinion uh, and all their friends are just those really boring kind of people like our f- sister nikki's friends are and since she doesn't listen i can say this but what if so, some of her friends listen n- none of the friends who i'm talking about would be listening if any I'm of not, her friends listen to I'm us not, and they can't be boring i'm not talking about her friends from like school okay, when she was whatever. in school and stuff i'm talking about her suburban friends now 
All they do is talk about their lawns and their kids and like wicked boring shit. So let me finish because I'm telling you why these. So so when these women whose husbands are awful and who don't have exposure to an interesting, exciting woman like you, (laughs) they're very compelled by you. I can think of at least four or five. It's not my perception. It's people I work with's perception. They say, wow, she really wants to be your best friend. Why is she's obsessed with you? She's always looking for you. Well, you should, I guess you should be flattered. But it's just strange. Maybe I'm the opposite opposite problem. I repel people. So I I can't really, (laughs) I wish, I can't really, I wish I I had that power. You're so lucky. I have some way. I didn't do my update. update. Yeah. Episode 94. Mm-hmm. Who killed Sonny Groton, I think it was called, about yes. the, the Navy guy whose wife was convicted of hiring a hitman. Her name was Norma Small. Uh-huh. Uh, she died recently, a couple weeks ago. She was still in prison. She was in the main correctional center in Wyndham, which isn't far from here, so I should have gone to say hi to her. They didn't say what she died of. She was 83. She was in the medical area of the prison, so yeah. she was sick. How long ago was that shooting? She was it 2001, right? She was convicted in 2001, but oh. she killed him in 1983. Well, she didn't kill him, those dirtbags. She did. had him killed in right. 1983, that wow. dirtbag guy that killed a bunch of people. Oh, that's right, because it was a long, drawn-out thing. Yeah, it's that was a good one. Yeah, the guy that one. was convicted of doing it had killed, or was convicted of several people. I mean, he wasn't, yeah. <laughs> I guess you wouldn't Got call him a serial killer per se, because he wasn't, I don't know. It's weird. When somebody kills people for like a hitman or something, they are serial killers, but they're not really looked at that way. No. Kill people, people serially, but they're not like. And why don't we just segue into our next okay. topic, which was Maine had a shooting, yeah. a mass shooting that yeah. didn't get a lot of attention. A guy he had just gotten out of prison and his parents <sighs> lived in Colorado. His parents like in their sixties and they came and he was in his third is in his thirties and they came here to pick him up after nice he got out of prison of and they were staying with a couple friends in Bowdoin, which is a town like halfway between Portland and Augusta, a river town. He obviously had mental health issues, but he was also a gun loving dick. And apparently his father, and I'm not victim blaming, also loved guns. And one of the things I read was he was mad because for him to live with his parents, you know, a felon, a convicted felon can't have guns in the house. So his father would have had to give up his guns and his father wasn't willing to do that. But yet they were here to pick him up. Something pissed him off. I'm not sure. He made some videos on Facebook airing his grievances uh, and saying other self-pitying. Oh, I need to be forgiven. I hope I can be forgiven. He shot his parents and the nice people they were staying with. Mm -hmm. And then he took a ride about 25 miles down and shot up a car on Interstate 295, seriously injuring three people in the car. He claims that he thought it was a police car. It was like a dark colored new model suv looking but i think he was just being an asshole shooting at people maybe he wanted to get caught or something i wondered if he wanted death by cop or suicide by cop although he gave up pretty easy he ran into the woods of yarmouth which kind of makes me laugh because yarmouth is a very tony upscale Mm. very tight sphincter town (laughs) and they had to lock down for a little while while he was running around in the woods and it sent everybody a flutter i shouldn't make light of it but it's just another situation where guns are the fucking 
problem yeah. and it came in that same week where at least three people who accidentally happened on somebody who had a gun and wanted to use it got shot the kid who was looking for his brothers and rang the wrong doorbell Aww. the young woman in the car of the guy who drove up the wrong driveway in new york the cheerleader who accidentally got yeah. into the wrong car so two things one my theory always is if somebody has a loaded gun they're looking for a reason to yes. use it and they feel justified and they're yes. all using stand your ground and i had just seen a doc on tv that unfortunately i can't remember the name of where a woman who had been raped by a guy and her brother she got her brother to come over and it's a long story but her brother was fighting with the guy trying to get him out of the house and she shot the guy because he was like trying to kill her brother and she's serving a prison sentence she tried to do stand your ground but as they <laughs> pointed out in that documentary stand your ground is only for white men so everybody else is lost. By Although fentanyl. with these three shootings to the little six-year-old girl that ran into the right. yard to get the ball. That, that shooter was black. Right. The um, one that shot the cheerleaders was Hispanic, but the other two were white. Right. And it's more, you know, it's more often yes. white. But, and also we don't know the, any success of their stand your ground cases. I'm sure the black guy and the Latino <laughs> guy if they're claiming stand your ground, it's not going to go anywhere. I'm sure the two white guys will be justified. Yeah. But I do and want to say the whole wrong car thing. It reminded me of hmm. one day when I was living with mom and dad and it was like right before Christmas. And it was that time of night where it's just getting dark out. I was in front of the post office in South Portland in my car. And I had just been in the post office and I was doing something. And all of a sudden my door opened and this guy started getting in. And it was like this older white guy. Yeah. And I, and I screamed and he's like, Oh, 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 Oh my God. I'm sorry. I thought this was my car. And I kind of started laughing, but it was like, you know, it's easy to get into the wrong car or think, I mean, I've, I've tried, I've got, I've actually gotten into a car thinking it was mine and not being able to figure out why the car wouldn't start. That, I've gotten into one a couple of times. I've almost gotten into one. And realized it wasn't mine. Or I've tried the key and it didn't work. But another time, it was in front of the courthouse in Portland. I was working for a lawyer and I had dropped something off. I had a Subaru Justy at the time, oh, which yeah. is a little tiny hatchback, bright red. And I came out of the courthouse and they have like angled parking in front of it. I got in this car and I was like why is there like a bag an empty fritos bag i wasn't eating fritos and i looked around and i realized it was not my car and every time you do that you're you're like oh shit now the person you want to get right. away from it you want to get away from it before the person it's happened to comes me. and finds you in it's, their car it's happened to me at least three times over the years like right now i have a silver subaru cross track which it seems like half the people in maine have so I can see how it can happen. And I didn't realize with the cheerleader one, it wasn't like she was getting into the car and the guy shot her. The girls realized they were getting into the wrong car. They said, oh my God, I'm sorry. She went to get into her own car and the guy came over and one of the girls rolled down the window to see what he wanted. And he leaned into the car and shot them. So not really stand your ground. And like with that other guy, the one where the young woman, they went up the wrong driveway and then they went back out yeah. and he shot after them as they were leaving. Right. First of all, I hope they search his house because why the hell is right. he so Why paranoid? are you there? What's paranoid? in your house? I mean, he does live in the deep woods of Adirondacks, you know, and it's one of those long dirt driveways, which means he had to make an effort to get down there. 
Once uh, Martha Stewart blocked somebody who was in her driveway really? up here in Maine. It was a private road. She lives, of course, lives down a of private course. road. And somebody accidentally, they were lost and drove down it. And she blocked them and wanted to know why they were on her property. I love these people who have these signs. No turning in driveway. It's like, what does it and affect I almost you want to. if somebody pulls? Didn't one of your friend's mothers used to, when she did that wave, yes. honk and wave. Honk and wave. That was, yeah. Yes, she's yeah. gone now. She's oh, a, a I was thinking, though, I used to drive by one on my way to work. And I always think every time someone has what no turning police take notice, I always, oh, it's yeah. always almost like a challenge. It's like, right. oh, really? And I'm sure the police are Get taking over notice. Yourself. Right. I'm sure Nobody the police gives are a taking shit notice. If someone's turning around in your stupid driveway. And I don't know what people's problem is. But anyway, mm-hmm. I have another thing. Okay. Some positive news. We do get feedback from people. We have never gotten feedback from anyone whose work that we did an NNW rating on <gasps> until yeah. now. Tom Olson, the documentarian who made Old Growth Murder, his, and I'm going to forget, his production company is Anchor. Sorry, Tom, if I'm not getting it right. Anchor Productions, I think. Listened to our NNW review, and he sent us some interesting feedback and it was positive it wasn't like it was very nice he was very nice and he actually answered some of the questions we had which is a first it was episode 139 in case you want to listen liz our sister it's when she gets host she referenced old growth murder in her story and then we did an nnw it's a documentary that is on amazon prime we recommended it we gave it a good review i did during our review obsess over the fact that it was never mentioned if the police developed the film in murder victim Elaine Malassard's camera, and it just bothered me, even though it wasn't a big mm-hmm. deal. We also discussed how the fact two witnesses to the David Peer murder, his son and girlfriend, were hypnotized, which is why their testimony likely wasn't allowed in court. Yes. But the documentary did not go into the issues with hypnotism gnosis and stuff and so i had an issue with that and we also thought the stuff with all those guys named butler could have been less confusing and i'll just read you what tom had to say he said hi i just want to thank you all for the time and energy you spent on reviewing my documentary old growth murder and i'm just including that part because it's nice that somebody's actually thanking us and saying something nice for something i really liked (laughs) your review and the way you used your categories and point system and again, this is Maureen. Thank you, Amber Knight. Yes. Black chick watching. Black girl. Black girl watching. Sorry, Amber, who back way back when we started this podcast oh, said yeah. she wanted other people to do their own rating system. And so we did. Tom says, you mentioned a couple of items that bothered me too. The film in Elaine's camera, I could really never get a clear understanding of what, if anything, happened to it. From police notes, it appeared that the film was damaged, maybe exposed in the attack. And the negatives were no good. But the Oregon State Police could never confirm this, nor his family. No real memory about it from anyone. Mm. In the documentary, near the time I mentioned no fingerprints on the bottles, I originally had the narrator say, nor would the Oregon State Police ever mention if the film and Malassard's camera produce any evidential or investigative value, unquote. This ultimately was one of the singular notes that Kent McLean and he was one of the investigators who was interviewed heavily in the documentary, argued was inaccurate. Hmm. And Tom says he saw a rough cut. He said there was never any film. So I removed the line, although clearly should have had a better footnote or got audio of McLean mentioning this. 
The hypnosis angle and the butler story was also extremely difficult. I don't know if you've seen my Instagram page, and just listeners will link his Instagram page on our website. And on our own Instagram, I put a photo he sent of a memorial at Elaine's murder site and also linked his Instagram for anyone who wants to look. But anyways, he says, the story was originally episodic. I had it cut into two 80-minute segments. Mm. The second part focused on the Butler origin story, AIM, Canada, and more information with the Oregon trial, including a hypnosis deep dive. My film was picked up by a good distributor, but they required me to trim it down to 120 minutes. So I had to cut 40 minutes of material. Yeah, that's a lot. The pure story suffers a lot from this. But ultimately, the spirit of the project was to get Elaine's story out there and in front of great people like you. And he means us by that. (laughs) So thank you again for talking about the project and spreading the word. I'm glad you found it. I'm a Portland, Oregon filmmaker. We had speculated it was a Canadian documentary because he goes, I teach full time digital media arts at Clark College in Vancouver, Washington, and make documentaries in my spare time. And he has spare time in quotes. Mm. He also says, as far as reviews go, it means more to have some criticism. If I had a nickel for every time someone said, good job, it was a bit long, sad story, unquote. He said, you all watched it, taken notes, and really analyzed it. He says, someone even watched it twice, a yeah. filmmaker's dream. So thank you. And I do. We both watched it we, twice. I yeah. Think. And I do try, if I know I'm going to do an NNW, to watch something. Yeah, if me too. I, he also said, over spring break, I revisited the campsite. And he's referring to where Elaine Melisard was murdered. It had been a few years. Anyway, someone had built out a memorial as you walk on down into the campgrounds. And as I said, I posted one of the photos he sent of that on our Instagram, and I'll put more on our website. He Hmm. says, it's wonderful the story is being recognized and Elaine's memory is being preserved in some way. I spent over a decade with old growth murder, so uncertain while I'll tackle a new idea, but I'm hoping I have one more in the tank. In the meantime, I sure enjoy meeting people that find the project and have a positive or negative reaction to it. And then another email, and this was very interesting. He said, two more footnotes before I forget. You also discussed the Michael Frankie case, and that's one that Liz mentioned in episode 139 and that she covered in episode 73. Tom says, that case has a really weird connection to Elaine Malisard's murder. Governor Goldschmidt's Oregon State Police driver at the time of Frankie's murder was Sergeant Gesswhite, the first responding officer to the campsite where Malisard was killed. Hmm. Gesswhite had taken over the chauffeuring duties from Bernie Justo. He had moved from the Lincoln County outpost to Salem Spot shortly after Malisard's murder. Kent McLean, the lead investigator on Malisard's murder, ultimately ended leaving Tillamook to investigate the Frankie murder. What greatly helped my research and interviews was that these two officers still had their notebooks from that time period because, they told me, they were from this time period of Frankie's case. Normally, you turn your notebooks in. Then Uh he says, shady? Absolutely. So it was very nice to hear. He took the effort. He found our website, our contact me Uh form, which I know people are skeptical of those things actually work because I do get people contacting me on my author one to like somebody contacted me and and I think I've heard from this woman before a couple of years ago demanded that I write some kind of paper for her and I responded the way I did before with I don't my mystery writer website is obviously I'm a mystery writer you know and I'm like no I don't do freelance work sorry go away yeah 
and yes one last topic before yes we... but i also want to say about what he said about criticism is true as a writer or any artist any creative person will criticism a good criticism it's always much more valuable than just oh i really liked it oh that's really good okay and i'm glad you like it Especially places where an algorithm is tied to reviews. If somebody gives you, I've known writers, and and this hasn't happened to me, where somebody gives a one-star review and doesn't give any feedback as to why they gave that review. So what I wanted to talk about, we both watched on, was it Hulu or Netflix? Hulu. Discovery Plus, Hulu. It's either Hulu or Netflix. Yeah. I think it was on Hulu. It's on Hulu. Okay. It's, it's called not, Pretty it's Baby. Not on, yeah, it's not on Netflix. How do you, why did you so adamant? Because I was looking for something to watch last okay. night and I was on either Hulu or Discovery Plus and thinking, as I always do, how how much lower quality the documentaries are on those channels yeah. than on Netflix and came across the Brooke Shields one and said, well, that one was pretty good for being on whichever channel it was. So anyways, I decided to watch it one night and I thought it was good. So I told you to watch it. It's a two-parter one and I'm not going to do NNW or anything. It's called Pretty Baby. That also refers to a movie she was in when she was 11. She's the same age as me. In fact, our birthdays are very I think she's Mm. in June and I'm July. So it's amazing how things, how much things have changed. Mm. That movie, Pretty Baby, the whole premise of it grosses me out now. Just yesterday, I saw a picture of Jodie Foster from the movie she was in with, what was that movie she was in, where she was a 12-year-old sex worker. Taxi Driver. Oh, it was Taxi Driver. I don't know why I didn't think it was. And it was around the same time. And it was like, why are these young women sexualized? And people made the point about Pretty Baby. Oh, it was a beautiful movie, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I don't give a shit. No, it and was... people also made the point, oh, it was it's based on reality. She made real the story. point. I don't she give made a the shit. point when she was talking to her daughters about it. I don't think yeah. she fully understands it. Maybe because well, if she, she was in it, it out. Right. And um, what appalled me was the criticism leveled at her. And even on TV, when she was interviewed, she's, she's 9, 10, 11 years old. It just shows that when you sexualize a child, people stop thinking of them as a child. She's disgusting. being asked questions you should be asking an adult, not a kid. And she seems like, I always felt this about her, even though she was sexualized, she didn't come across in real life as a right. as a sexualized person no, in real life. I always even liked her. that whole stupid thing about her being a virgin when it, right. it was totally blown out of right. proportion. Her, a normal, like a normal person right. that if you met her, you would be able to talk You'd to like her. her. I liked that documentary, but I I think there was a little revisionist history or things glossed over, like Blue Lagoon. Which she only said positive things about. I can remember either her or somebody else talking about the sexual exploitation on the set. And both her and William Catt, who, by the way, his name was not mentioned in that documentary, despite the fact they did several minutes on Blue Lagoon. You know, and he was the young male actor. I don't think I thought they, that was Timothy, wasn't his name Timothy his name Atkins? Was. Well, whatever his name was, they didn't even say it during, no. yeah, Timothy Atkins. Sorry, William Cat. I was like, of, the great, greatest American hero oh. <laughs> scenario. They had curly blonde hair. Yeah, they both had curly blonde hair. But there was a lot of sexual exploitation 
of them as yes. underage children being told to do things naked and stuff. So this documentary didn't even talk about that. And fine, you know, it talked a lot about a lot of other sexual exploitation to the point where you're just totally grossed out. But the rationalization about sexualizing young girls, and I'm thinking like pretty baby, okay, she's Jewel's age, your daughter's age. And I cannot imagine Jewel in that position and or even if it's true which of course it's true that there are young girls oh yeah being trafficked it was romanticized and glorified and it, there's no reason and to have a movie and men just love that shit a movie Mal, about a young girl right, that's, that's right ooh, you and know. then someone either brooke uh, shields or someone else uh, said well louis mail the director he was subtle about it and let you come to your own conclusion and i'm like no as an artist if you want to present this as exploiting a kid you make a different kind of movie you don't make this romanticizing sexualized child and let people come to their own conclusion because all the fucking pedophiles and people who sex who objectify women are gonna come to the conclusion well there was a movie i saw it was at least 10 years ago i think it's called or or and it was an israeli movie about a young woman whose mother is a sex worker and it shows how brutally her mother was treated and the girl ends up at the end of the movie she's probably a teenager 15 or 16 becoming a sex worker and that that was not romanticized wasn't exploitative it didn't show graphic stuff and it wasn't romanticizing it i heard a woman on something i was listening to npr someone who worked with sex workers saying i have yet to meet one that says oh i want to keep doing this the rest of my life most of them don't want to do it right right. but they don't have a choice but anyways we digress i did like that documentary and i I, I did too i I like brooke shields she's got really good friends who are on the second part was was still interesting right it's easy to demonize her mother she had a very complicated relationship with her mother and i liked the nuance it gave about her mother the only thing about the documentary like a lot of these documentaries the ending like that part where she's at the oh, that kitchen table talking to her daughters, daughters is yeah. boring i find a lot of these documentaries when they get to what's going on now it just gets boring they're not telling a story anymore and it goes on too long but anyway okay. speaking of telling a story and i don't know what you're doing so i'm excited you tried to drop some hints and spoil it for me but i didn't take the bait i think i've done a lot of stories that take place in the 30s i don't know why it's an interesting era i don't know what it is and also people that think we have more crime now they need to read a newspaper from the 1930s there was freaking crime all over the place i know people are idiots i always see like a bunch of different stories i want to do so this one takes place in 1930 and it takes place in portland i did all my research by using newspapers.com and i believe there is at least one other podcast about this I know there's one other, but there's probably more. I don't listen to other people's podcasts about cases unless I've already covered them because I don't want to be swayed by anything. Um, I want to do my own research. And I usually don't use other podcasts as research. No offense to anybody. And I wouldn't expect someone to use me. Most of the information came from the Portland Press Herald and the Evening Express. I did read some other main papers and I'll quote them in the presentation. But I found that, you know, most of them were taking stuff from the portland papers so i might as well go to the source i also have photos which we'll put on our website Um, i got some from the main memory network 
which is run by the Maine Historical Society, I think. And I'm going to try to find some more because the newspaper, you know, the images on newspapers.com are, you know, they're like microfiche that's been scanned or microfilm. And they're old newspaper photos. It's really hard to see things. But sometimes on Maine Memory Network, they have original or copies of the original photos. And that's a lot better. So I'll hopefully I can get some good ones. And I'm going to take some around town because this takes place in Portland. Nice probably about a quarter mile or so from my house. So let me get started. Yeah, I'm excited. It was Saturday, July 12, 1930. Lillian McDonald was a 20-year-old office worker for the retail establishment Loring Short and Harmon in Portland, Maine. The office supply company was housed in a six-story building on Portland's Monument Square, which is on the main street of downtown Congress Street. The company had been in business since 1865, and before it closed at the end of 1995, it was a small chain across the state and, I believe, into New Hampshire. There was one in downtown Augusta because I used to deliver their newspaper. I was just going to say that. Okay. The Monument Square location was the company headquarters, and at that time, it might have been the only store, but I'm not sure. When we were growing up, as you said, in Augusta in the 1970s, that was the place you would go for office supplies or art supplies. I don't don't think there were many other places to go. Pretty sure I remember one in the Mall of New Hampshire in the 1980s, but I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure there was one there. In any case, Lillian McDonald worked in the office of the large brick building on Monument Square up on the second floor. Part of her job was to hand out the pay envelopes. And at this time, I believe people were paid in cash, not by check. I may be wrong, but nothing is explained in the newspaper accounts that I use for research. And it was probably such a common thing that they didn't need to clarify that the pay envelopes had cash in them. Saturday was payday, and the store and offices closed at noon on Saturdays. It was about 10 a.m. when Lillian picked up the pay envelopes at the cashier's office on the second floor, where she herself worked. She gave some of her fellow co-workers their envelopes. She got on the freight elevator and gave the elevator operator, Ernest Kinney, his pay as they rode down to the basement. The freight elevator was at the rear of the building. When Lillian got off the elevator, she walked towards the front of the building, stopping at the shipping office to give two workers their pay. Then she gave her co-worker, James Mitchell, inexplicably called Frank in some early accounts, his pay envelope, and then she disappeared. Mm. It wasn't until noon, when the store was closing for the day, that police were called. Employees were complaining to the big boss, Edward A. Shaw, that they hadn't received their pay. Edward, the president of the company, started asking around and found out no one had seen Lillian for at least an hour and a half. He called the bank and got more money to pay the employees who hadn't received their pay yet. Then he called police. Edward Shaw didn't believe Lillian McDonald would have stolen the money, about $750, and taken off. She was a nice young woman from a good family. Police weren't so sure. Officers were sent to Lillian's home at 46 Robert Street, where she lived with her parents. She was not there. And Robert Street is down near where the University of now it's Southern Maine is, but it's in that neighborhood. Some others were sent to Rigby Yard, which is a huge railroad terminal in South Portland, where an acquaintance, as he was called in the newspapers, apparently worked. But this person had not seen her either. Edward Shaw, the boss, and Lieutenant William Chase of the Portland PD talked to the young man and took his word that he had nothing to do with Lillian's disappearance. Meanwhile, staff and police were searching every inch of the building. It was reported that every nook and cranny and closet and every shipping container and box was searched to see if Lillian was hiding or hurt or worse, if her body was put somewhere. 
but no one found her. And that was, as I said, a six-story building. And I think they used the whole building for their business. Some employees, according to newspaper reports, said that two strange men had been seen in the rear of the store shortly before closing. Both were middle-aged or older. One was wearing what was described as a soft hat and the other a cap. Everyone wore hats back then. Both were in dark blue suits. Also that day, the doors to the alleyway behind the store were open, so anyone could walk in. The alley ran from Center Street to probably to Cross Street. I'm not sure because the geography has changed a little bit since then. But the point is Lillian could have easily slipped out or someone could have come in and grabbed her and left. A friend of Lillian's told police on Saturday afternoon that Lillian had received letters from a man in Massachusetts. These letters, which Lillian had shown to the friend, were, quote, jealous in tone. Mm. But the police followed this lead and found it unfruitful. A description of Lillian was sent to every police station throughout New England. WCSH also aired the news over the radio. She was described as five feet two inches tall and weighing about 100 pounds. She had dark hair and was wearing a flowered dress. She had no coat, hat, or purse. Those were found in her office. A subsequent description said she was wearing a brown skirt and a tan top with brown and tan shoes with a strap. Oh, and she was five feet, six inches tall and 100 pounds. So much for the description. But they did have her picture in the paper, which we'll post a picture of her. A man who lived at 21 State Street Philip Williams reported that he had seen Lillian walk past his house at about noon Saturday afternoon. He said he knew her and was sure it was her that he saw out his front bay window. And by the way, 21 State Street just sold about a year ago for $1.5 million. Mm -hmm. Philip used to live on Robert Street and knew Lillian by sight, he told police. He said he saw her walking towards York Street, about 100 yards from the Million Dollar Bridge, which crosses the Four River to South Portland. In the Portland Press-Herald, Philip said, she appeared nervous to me. She was without a coat and hat, had a bundle under her left arm and a glove or a handkerchief in her right hand. Where Philip lived is about three quarters of a mile from the Loring Short and Harmon building, so easily walkable. Police told the newspapers they were baffled by Lillian's disappearance. It was as if she had just vanished into thin air. Searches were conducted on other businesses on the block. There was a warehouse across the alley that police also searched thoroughly. All the proprietors along the alley and on Center Street were questioned, but none had seen Lillian. Lillian's family was sure something bad had happened to her. One of her sisters told the Press Herald that she was sure Lillian had been hit with a blackjack and kidnapped. Hmm. I had to look up what a blackjack was. It's a leather pouch with a rod inside. Yeah, I knew that. That's pretty specific for her to know what kind of weapon it was. I told you his crime was rampant back then. Lillian's mother had recently recovered from what was described as a serious illness. It's mentioned throughout the reports that Lillian's mother was very ill, but the specific ailment is never described. Mrs. McDonald said that if her daughter was going to be late or if she was going to have dinner or see a movie or something, she'd call and let the family know. It just wasn't like Lillian to take off. As for the two strange men, police said they were looking for two men who had rented a car Saturday morning at about 9.30 for what was supposed to be two hours. They didn't return the car until late Saturday night. Also, they'd been renting a room at a boarding house on Forest Avenue for the past month. But on Saturday morning, they packed up and left. 
Police were trying to find out if these two men could have been the same two men seen in Lauren Short and Harmon around the time of Lillian's disappearance. On the day following Lillian vanishing, more details came out about her last movements. Lillian picked up the envelopes from the cashier as she did every week. She went back to her desk to sort them by department. She brought some envelopes, about $300 worth of money, back to the cashier, telling him those employees were on vacation. Edward Shaw, the company president, said that he had noticed Lillian looking pale and drawn that morning. She'd been near his desk opening the mail. He knew her mother had been ill and assumed she was under a lot of stress at home. James Mitchell from the shipping department said that after Lillian gave him his pay, he walked towards the front of the store while she walked toward the back, back to the elevator and stairs. Lillian was found on Sunday, July 13th. Well, what remained of Lillian? Mm -mm. The county attorney, what we now know as the district attorney or prosecutor, Ralph Ingalls, had been thinking a lot about what could have happened to Lillian. He knew something bad must have happened to the young woman. He couldn't believe she would just steal the payroll and leave. A lot of the police and others were saying they thought she was chloroformed and kidnapped. But Ralph thought it was unlikely anyone could have left the building with Lillian without anyone seeing them. He was sure that she was still in the building. Sunday morning, Ralph called Edward Shaw. Edward probably had not slept much. He was worrying about his employee and also had been helping the police with their investigation. Ralph Ingalls said he wanted to search the building again. He had a hunch. Some reports said that Edward Shaw laughed and said a hundred police and employees had gone over the building already. What did Ralph Ingalls think he was going to find? I don't think he was that flippant about it, though. No. Ralph wanted to go to the last place Lillian was seen, try to recreate the crime. Ralph, Edward, and police inspector Lieutenant Richard Nugent went down to the basement. The men looked around the shipping department, then walked down a narrow passageway to the boiler room at the front of the store. When they were about 15 feet from the boiler, Ralph Ingalls said he smelled burned flesh. Mm. He opened the door to the furnace and looked inside with his flashlight. He saw part of a human skull. Oh. When asked about it later, Lieutenant Nugent admitted that he had not noticed the furnace being unusually hot on Saturday when the basement of the building was being searched, and none of the searchers had noticed any odd smells. It was one of those big old-fashioned furnaces you'd think somebody would have looked inside of it. I know. It was speculated that on Saturday, with the basement basement doors open and air flowing, the heat and smell were not as noticeable. But on Sunday morning, after the building had been closed up all night, it was easier to smell it. More searching revealed a few pay envelopes had slipped under the ash pan of the furnace. To Ralph Ingalls and Lieutenant Nugent, that indicated that robbery probably wasn't the motive. When asked later by reporters what he thought the motive was, Ralph Ingalls said probably criminal assault, which in 1930s lingo means rape. It didn't take long to solve the murder. Lieutenant Nugent and Ralph Ingalls wanted to talk to the last person who they knew had seen Lillian, James Mitchell. By Monday, the newspapers were reporting that James Mitchell, 22, a shipping clerk at Loringshore and Harmon, had confessed to criminally assaulting and killing Lillian, then putting her body in the furnace. The medical examiner, Dr. William Holt, spent Sunday afternoon sifting through the ashes of the furnace, removing the bones and what little evidence remained of Lillian oh. McDonald. Dr. Holt came to the conclusion that Lillian had been dead before being put into the furnace. Most of her remains were bones, except for a small part of her scalp, which was under layers of thick paper or cardboard. Lillian's skull had been crushed. Beside the firebox, Dr. Holt found the murder weapon, a furnace shaker. Again, I had to look this up. 
A furnace shaker or grate shaker is a detachable handle that attaches to the grate inside the furnace so you can reach in and lift the grate as a handle and with a hooky iron, thing on it. iron hook on the end. At least that's how I understand it. That's what that picture I sent you, that guy was holding. He's like, ugh, that oh. police man. This furnace shaker was about one and a half feet long and made of iron. The Press Herald read a photo of Captain William White of the Portland Police Department holding it up, which we can put on our... Mm -hmm. I shouldn't laugh, but the look on his face is funny. Mm. Dr. Holt also found an iron pipe by the furnace. It was about three and a half feet long and blackened with soot and ash. Lillian's class ring was found with her remains. Mm. Inscribed on it was the year 1928 and PHS for Portland High School. Her initials LIM were inscribed on the inside of the ring. Lillian's mother reportedly collapsed when she was told that her favorite daughter had died. Ralph Ingalls, along with Attorney General Clement Robinson and Lieutenant Richard Nugent, went over to 46 Robert Street and broke the news. Lillian's family said the only thing that kept Mrs. McDonald going was the thought of being able to see her daughter's face again before they buried her. No one had the heart to tell her that Lillian's body was not intact. Yeah, there's no face. Lillian's mother, Winifred, was put under the care of a doctor. The family was worried that the shock was going to kill her, too. On Sunday morning, Lieutenant Nugent went to James Mitchell's home at 67 Mountfort Street. Oh. Full disclosure, I live on Mountfort Street, but the building that James Mitchell lived in is long gone, as well as the building that was uh, is on the site where I live. As a matter of fact, I think there might be only one building on my street that would have been here in 1930, maybe two. It's called it urban seems, renewal. Yeah, everything's been torn down. It's not all not those all that those buildings that you guys live in were built in the 70s as part of it was early 70s it was 72 and then down the street is other ones and then there are like i counted there's two there's one on the corner of federal street that's an older building and there's one next to it and that's it on the street i have pictures from the tax site. oh we're gonna have a lot of 1920 i think it's 1924 so anyway when lieutenant nugent showed up at the apartment where james mitchell lived with his aunts James was still sleeping. After work the day before, he'd gone to Old Orchard Beach to swim. Then he bought some reading material at a bookstore and Saturday night went to a movie. He willingly went to the police station with Lieutenant Nugent. Police had suspected James as soon as they discovered Lillian's body. James was the one who usually burned the shipping detritus in the furnace, and he was the last person known to have seen Lillian. Edward Shaw later told the papers he'd suspected James since Saturday afternoon. After Edward and the police spoke to James on Saturday before he left work for the day, James said, well, if you want me for anything, you'll know where to find me. James was at the police station for several hours. The newspaper reports don't say what happened there, just that James was in Chief Haskell's office and was given plenty of time to think about his circumstances. At about 6 p.m., James was brought to County Attorney Ralph Ingalls' home on Dartmouth Street. I think it's kind of weird that James was questioned in the county attorney's home, but maybe that's the way things were done. Like maybe he had an office at his home. The paper had a photo of the, it said in the caption, ultra modern room (laughs) where the confession happened and a photo of the house itself, which I thought was weird too. Things were done very strangely. I mean, it was pre-Miranda. They could pretty much do whatever they wanted. Just the fact that they brought him to his house. Yeah, but if he's, say he's the county attorney, but he's a practicing lawyer. Oh, that's true. And they all had offices at their houses back then. Maybe there was no county 
attorney because they called it in the caption the third degree room or something so obviously yeah. it wasn't just him that had been questioned right. there anyway james sat in the ultra modern room with ralph ingles the county attorney's assistant walter tapley jr the state's attorney general clement robinson and portland police chief herman haskell James didn't want to admit anything at first, but with four men questioning him, he broke down pretty quickly. It's funny, though, that all the papers report how it was a lengthy interrogation, but then they say it was 45 minutes long. So to Mm. me, that's not lengthy. They told James what they had found in the furnace. They showed him Lillian's class ring, the pipe, and the great shaker, and he broke down and told them what happened. James said he had an argument with Lillian. The paper said the subject matter was, quote, undisclosed. Hmm. He said Lillian slapped him and that caused James to hit her with the great shaker and beat her to death. Hmm. James Mitchell was taken under arrest back to the Portland police station in the county jail where he was booked and put in a cell. He reportedly collapsed onto his cot and was put on suicide watch. It's funny how these guys, the woman always did something. I know. Oh, them. she slapped me. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm sure that quote unquote argument was him wanting to kiss her, rape her, or yes. do something else to her and her trying to get away from yes, him. Yes, exactly. Herbert L. Brown of Wilmot Street was the night watchman at Lauren Short and Harmon. Once Lillian's body was found, police were interested in talking with Herbert to see if he had noticed anything Saturday night. Herbert said that when he got to work Saturday evening, he noticed a large pool of water on the floor near the furnace. He said that the boiler was hotter than usual. He figured the water on the floor was from the return pipe leaking, which it would do if the furnace was working too hard. He wondered why such a large amount of rubbish had been burned at once. He opened the furnace door at about 7 p.m. to see if he could discern how bad the leak was. He didn't notice any live embers then or twice later when he checked the furnace. He also didn't notice any kind of an odd odor. At about 6 a.m., he checked inside the furnace again. He saw a large piece of pipe in the firebox and used a shovel to get it out. Then he noticed under many layers of cardboard that coals were still burning in the bottom of the furnace. Even though Herbert knew Lillian was missing and he thought finding a pipe in the furnace was odd, he didn't put the pieces together that a murder could have happened in the basement. Herbert was horrified to learn that when he removed the pipe from the furnace and stirred up the embers, he had inadvertently dismembered Lillian and spread her remains around the firebox. He said to his questioners, I don't believe it. It just couldn't be. Later, he said, believe me, if I had known that, I never would have gone near the furnace. Mm. By the way, they described Herbert as being aged, but he was 57 years old, (laughs) same age as me. On Sunday, crowds of onlookers hung around Monument Square down Federal Street towards the police station, which was only a few blocks away. The police planned to have extra cops patrolling the area Monday morning when James Mitchell was taken across the street from the jail to the courthouse for his initial appearance. It was newspaper reporters who notified James Mitchell's mother, Alice, of her son's arrest. She started crying and said, it can't be true. I saw him this morning, talked with him. He was happy. He was in good spirits. He wasn't worried about anything. Late Saturday night or early Sunday, right after midnight, James had showed up at the Press Herald building on Congress Street. He had known the foreman of the mailroom, Benjamin Whitcomb, for years. James wanted to buy a Sunday Telegram early edition. The two men got into a conversation about what was going on in their lives. According to Benjamin, James said, I'm working at Lauren Short and Harmon's now. Benjamin said, you must know all about this Lillian McDonald case then. 
James said, yeah, I guess I was the last one to see her alive. Mm. James Mitchell was born and raised in Portland. His father, Tony, was dead and his mother was living on Park Avenue in Portland. Tony Mitchell used to work with his brother at the restaurant Mitchell's Oyster House, which was located on Monument Square and what the Press Herald called one of the best restaurants in the city. James lived with his aunts, Amelia and Margaret Kearney on Mountfort Street. I'm assuming they were old maids. Spinsters. James went to Portland High School where he was a member of the Portland High School cadets, but he left school without graduating. He was also a son time amateur boxer. As a teen, James had worked as an errand boy for the Portland Maine Publishing Company, who published the Press Herald, Evening Express, and Sunday Telegram. He also worked as a clerk at the George W. Shaw Grocery Store, which is now still around known as Shaw's. James' boss at Lauren Short and Harmon, Edward Shaw, not related to the grocery store that I know of, said James was one of the best shipping clerks he'd had in a long time. Hardworking and efficient. By Sunday evening, James had a lawyer, Joseph Connellan. Joseph told reporters that he was going to ask for a two-week continuance at the arraignment Monday morning and also request a psychological exam for his client. On Sunday night, after Lillian was found, Alexander McDonald, Lillian's father, went to the police station to find out what he could about the investigation. He wanted to know if police had any idea of who killed his daughter. As Alexander was standing in the corridor of the police station with Captain William White, Lieutenant Nugent walked by holding James Mitchell by the arm. James was fresh off his confession at Ralph Ingalls' house. Lieutenant Nugent whispered the news in Captain White's ear. When Alexander McDonald asked the police what it was about, he was told that Ralph Ingalls would fill him in. Alexander rode to Dartmouth Street to Ralph Ingalls' house with two reporters from the Evening Express. Mm. Now, I know this sounds weird to us now, but we've discussed in other episodes how the press and police were very chummy back then. In some ways, it's good because the reporters are reporting their firsthand impressions of things that happen. But in other ways, obviously, it leads to biased reporting. Mm -hmm. When the group arrived at Ralph Ingalls' house, Ralph came out and greeted Alexander with a handshake and said, Hello, Mr. McDonald. I'm sorry for you. This is an awful thing. Alexander said, Any news on who did it? Ralph said, Yes, the man has just told me that he did it. Alexander said, was it Mitchell? And Ralph said, yes, Mitchell did it, said he did it, said he struck her with an iron shaker bar and then burned the body. The reporter said at this point, Alexander McDonald winced visibly, but clamped his jaws tightly together and said nothing, just looked straight at Ingalls. Ralph said, that's all there is to it. I don't think I had better tell you the details of it. It was too awful. Alexander said, tell me, I want to hear it. Ralph said, you really want to? And Alexander said, yes, tell me, I can stand it. Ralph Ingalls then told Lillian's father what James Mitchell had done, that he had hit Lillian several times with the shaker bar and then burned her body. I'm assuming, although back then the paper skirted around this, that Alexander was also told that Lillian had been raped before she was killed. Ingalls said, I have her class ring in the house and you may have it. Alexander said, yes, I want it. I want her body too. We must have a coffin. Mm. Ralph answered, the body was practically destroyed. All we have are bones. Alexander said, I want them. Can I have them? (laughs) Ralph said, certainly you can have them. I'll see to that for you. Alexander said, we've got to have her buried in a coffin. Her mother will go crazy if we don't bring her home. Alexander ended up leaving the ring with Ralph Ingalls for the time being in the event the case went to trial, since it was evidence. 
As he was leaving, Alexander said to reporters, it is terrible, but it is a relief to know where the girl is. It was awful not knowing. The next day, Alexander McDonald said of James, I would have torn him to pieces if I could have reached him. It is a good thing I didn't know who he was when they took him to headquarters on Sunday night. I saw them take a man in while I was there, but I didn't know who he was. I wish I had a chair nearer where they placed him when he was taken to court this morning. I'm well along in years, but I could have made that leap to get at him. Sunday night, as the crowd hung around the jail, police station courthouse complex, there was a shout through the crowd, Mitchell's cab is here. Everyone turned to get a look at the man who murdered the young sweet office clerk. But the man who emerged in the custody of a cop wasn't James Mitchell. He was Clifford Cole, a student from the State University in Orono, accompanied by Orono Deputy Sheriff Carl Mitchell. Deputy Mitchell had arrested Clifford in Attleboro, Massachusetts, and was bringing him back up to Orono to face charges of larceny for stealing jewelry, clothing, and other items when he was a student at Orono. They had time between trains, so Deputy Mitchell brought his charge to the police station to wait. So it was Mitchell's cab, (laughs) but not the correct Mitchell, and the crowd was very disappointed. And also, those articles about that kid stealing stuff, and there were two other kids, I guess. The judge asked them why they did it they said it's dead up there there's nothing to do he was from new jersey and the Uh. other kid was from connecticut or something on monday morning july 14th a crowd gathered at the courthouse the newspapers estimated it to be about a thousand people mostly women while the crowd was described as angry it was also reported that there was no hostility so i don't really know the headline said There was no hostility. And then in the article, they said they were angry. Police had 40 extra officers around to keep the peace as James was led across Church Street from the jail to the courthouse. Only reporters and photographers were allowed on Church Street. The rest of the crowd was kept to the flanking streets, Newberry Street and Federal Street. James Mitchell was handcuffed to Lieutenant Nugent, who led him into court and sat with him in the prisoner's dock, which was surrounded by a railing. Alexander McDonald's eyes were trained on James Mitchell the whole time as County Attorney Ralph Ingalls presented the murder warrant to the judge. The courtroom was full to capacity and the crowds outside on Newbury Street were peering through the windows to try to see what was going on. Defense Attorney Joseph Connellan told the court, I will waive a reading and hearing and enter a plea of not guilty. James Mitchell stood, not looking at the judge, but straight ahead at a point in the distance. Then Lieutenant Nugent rushed James back across the street back to his cell. Alexander McDonald told reporters that his wife kept asking for an undertaker to be arranged so the body of her daughter could be brought home. Back in the 1930s, a dead person was often kept in the home until burial. Ask mom. She says she had nightmares when her dad's body was laid out in the living room after his death in 1948. Oh, I shouldn't laugh, but she does. She's told me that story several yes. times. Alexander said no one in the family had been able to tell his wife the details of Lillian's death. Mrs. McDonald had not slept since Saturday when Lillian hadn't come home. Along with her poor health, Lillian's mother was on the verge of collapse. According to jail staff, after James was booked and returned to his cell, he lay down on his cot and fell soundly asleep until eight the next morning. Joseph Connellan told reporters that his client did not remember his confession at all. James told his lawyer that he vaguely remembered going to a house, but he didn't remember anything that happened. Meanwhile, more details were coming out about the confession. As James was shown Lillian's class ring and other evidence, his face started to twitch. Then he asked for a cigarette, took a drag, and collapsed into a chair. 
He said Lillian had come back to the boiler room to give him his pay. They had some kind of argument, which police did not disclose. And according to James Mitchell, Lillian slapped him across the face. He picked up the great shaker and hit her on the head. As she lay on the floor moaning, he hit her a second time. One thing left out of this story is that at some point, probably between the face slap and the hitting with the great shaker, James raped Lillian. As I said, the papers didn't really ever put that in the story, but several of the stories mention criminal assault. And the accounts of the crime years later say that James raped Lillian. I'm sure this was part of his confession. It just wasn't reported, except in a roundabout way. Then James put Lillian's body in the furnace. The furnace was huge. The opening was about four feet wide by three feet high, but the firebox went back about 12 feet deep. James picked up the three and a half foot pipe and used it to shove Lillian's body as far back as he could. He threw in a bunch of paper and cardboard on top of Lillian's body. For the next hour and a half, James tended the furnace, throwing flammable debris and stoking up the fire as much as he could. Police also thought he must have thrown the remaining pay envelopes in the fire, except the few that had fallen out of sight and were found later under the ash pan. When police searched James' home later, they didn't find any evidence that he had taken any of the $700 to $800 that Lillian had on her that day. He only took his own pay envelope, apparently. The Evening Express interviewed 19-year-old Frank Myatt, who had what the newspaper described as a great friendship with Lillian. Frank lived in South Portland near Rigby Yards. I'm assuming he was the one police went to question that Saturday that Lillian was first missing. However, he did not work at the rail yard. He just lived near it. Frank was at Lillian's house on Robert Street, giving moral support to her family. He had last seen Lillian on Thursday night. He said, I can't talk to anyone. There is nothing to say. I have told all I know. And although he had nothing to say, he did go on to say, Mm. if I'd had a job, I would have asked her to marry me. I am poor. I lost my job and have no money. It is not true that we were engaged to be married in September. If I'd had a job, things would have been different. Everyone liked her. She had everything that makes a girl wonderful. So why shouldn't I have been fond of her? There wasn't any one characteristic that made her likable. It was just her whole disposition. Lillian grew up mostly on Munjoy Hill, which is on the eastern part of the Portland Peninsula. She went to Emerson School on Munjoy Hill and graduated from Portland High School. She'd worked for Loring Short and Harmon since the January before her death. She had two older married sisters and lived with her parents on Robert Street. When reporters interviewed co-workers of Lillian and James, they found that both were liked around the store. Thomas Peters and Louis Miles, who worked with James in the shipping room, were shocked that he could commit such a crime. They said James was a good worker and got along with everyone, male and female. Thomas said, since Mitchell came to work in my department about Christmas time last year, I have found him to be a capable workman, always willing to help and very agreeable, both in his relations with me and other employees. I've often heard other workers here, both men and women, complain that he was too boisterous and brand him as a fresh kid. Hmm. I always disagreed with them and said he was naturally loud spoken and meant nothing by it. Thomas also said he often saw James and Lillian talking. 
But he said he said he saw James talking with other young women who worked there and thought nothing of it either. Just the regular conversations one has with fellow employees. Thomas hadn't worked that Saturday, and when he heard of Lillian's disappearance, he didn't think for a minute that James could be involved. Lewis Miles had been working that morning. He told the Press Herald that Lillian and James had a short conversation in front of his desk that morning, but he was focused on what he was doing. And since he was slightly hard of hearing, he didn't know what they were talking about. He was trying to get everything in order before he went on vacation. Lewis said that Lillian left, but he didn't pay attention to where she went. Then James started to help Lewis package items up for shipping. They worked together for about 15 minutes, according to Lewis, and then James abruptly picked up a barrel of waste paper and took it to the boiler room. Lewis said that James and Lillian had started their jobs at the company at about the same time and seemed friendly. Part of her job was to come down to the basement every Monday morning and fill the inkwells from the office upstairs. Lewis had noticed recently that James would leave whatever work he was doing and come over and talk to Lillian. Lewis thought that whenever Lillian came down to the basement on an errand, she would go out of her way to talk to James. Some others said that they had seen the two go to the boiler room on several occasions, but Lewis said he didn't notice that and that James was friendly with all his fellow employees. Beatrice Vanner, who worked in the office with Lillian, said Lillian never mentioned James and only talked about her family at work, usually her mom and sisters. Doris Gray said Lillian was a good-natured kid, but she didn't have any deep conversations with her, even though they shared an office. Doris also didn't know about any friendship between James and Lillian. Helena Brockman said Lillian was a sweet girl. Helena never went to the shipping room, so she didn't know James at all. Marion Ayer worked in, in a department on the third floor. She lived on Park Avenue, so sometimes she and Lillian would travel to work together, and I'm assuming on the bus or streetcar, but the article didn't specify. Marion's house would have been on the way from Lillian's, so they could have maybe walked together, but I don't think she walked that far. Marion didn't know much about Lillian outside the office. She said, Lillian always was pleasant and cheerful with everyone, but had few intimates. Marion knew James only a little at work, but said he was polite and seemed well-liked. She said he never made any moves on her or said anything inappropriate. The kids James knew on Monjoy Hill told reporters that he was friendly, but kind of secretive. He would dress nice and go downtown every night. None of them thought he had any close friends or girlfriends. When James was a kid hanging out at the family restaurant, Mitchell's Oyster House, he was always pulling pranks and displaying a violent temper. A former employee said James would throw milk cans and stoppers around. And by stoppers, I'm assuming like a bottle cork or a lid. I don't know what they meant by stoppers. Things you know those that... big metal milk cans? Oh, yeah. Couldn't they have big yeah, stopper things? Maybe that's what they meant. The Evening Express ran a short item about James that was quoted in several subsequent articles in Portland Papers and others, and it's short, so I'll read it in full. Headline, Mitchell, a ravenous reader about murder. Just like us. Bookshop clerk reveals alleged slayer once said he could almost commit crime and get away with it. James M. Mitchell, alleged murderer of Lillian I. McDonald, was an insatiable reader of mystery of murder stories and procured a tale of this type a few hours after the crime. It became known today in a new slant on his personality obtained from Miss Christine McDonald, clerk at Louis Bookshop at 477 Congress Street. And I'm breaking in here to clarify that Christine was not related to Lillian. This article didn't say it, but later articles said mm -hmm. no relation. 
always a voracious reader of murder stories and banned in Boston fiction, which is in quotes, so it must mean something. You know how they were prudish in yes. Boston, and that was yes. kind of a That's saying. what I figured, yeah. So it just means that kind of lurid fiction yes. of the day. Mitchell entered the store one day to return a book to Miss McDonald in the lending library, and after discussing the merits of the book, declared, I could almost commit a murder and get away with it the way they're writing about it nowadays. Mitchell certainly was a strange man, Miss McDonald told newspapermen. I could never make him out. He was a moody individual and lots of times came to me and said, I want a smutty book. On other occasions, he was anxious to get a mystery story. I think he liked Edgar Wallace's books the best. The Crimson Circle was his favorite Wallace mystery. Although he never talked over the love stories with me, he was entirely different about the mystery murder yarns, seeming to enjoy explaining the details of the plot. He constantly marveled at the way the murderers in the books escaped detection. Occasionally, he would change his type of reading and take out nonfiction books, such as the biography of Henry VIII and other biographies. I was not in the store Saturday when he came in for a book. He took the 31st Bullfinch, a murder mystery. The crime in the book, as I recall it, has no parallel to that alleged committed by Mitchell. He always greeted me in a peculiar way when he entered the store, invariably crying out, Hello there, James Mitchell is the name, Miss McDonald <laughs> said. The bookshop clerk revealed that Mitchell was constantly asking her to go out with him, but that she had steadfastly declined. That's the end of the article. I am a little dubious that she actually spoke that way, but you know. I know. Probably the gist of it's there. There were rumors flying that there may be other suspects in Lillian's murder or other people involved. This was because police recalled several employees to question them again about the events of Saturday morning. But investigators were just getting their ducks in a row before they confronted James with the evidence. They flatly denied reports of any other suspects but James. Police Chief Herman Haskell said, Captain White and Detective Nugent have been interviewing witnesses in the case today, but I haven't heard of any other suspect. Meanwhile, James was in jail reading magazines in his cell, which he wasn't allowed to leave. They mentioned he's not allowed to leave his cell, but it seems like when you're in jail, you're awaiting trial, you're usually not walking around. Right. His watchers said he had a hearty appetite. Both mothers, Winifred McDonald, Lillian's mother, and Alice Mitchell, Jane's mother, were suffering physically from the stress, and both were under doctor's care. Alice was still insisting that her son could not have committed such a horrible crime. Joseph Connellan, defense attorney, indicated that he might use the insanity defense for James. He said, all of the material brought to me so far about young Mitchell points to an abnormal condition in connection with his life. When he was eight years old, he received a head injury when he was thrown from a bicycle when an automobile struck him. When he was 12 years old, he was injured while playing a prank in his father's restaurant. He locked himself in a large basket, and when the basket had been placed on the elevator, he moved it about so it jammed between the elevator and one of the floors. And I want to break in here to say, I also read in another one, he was trying to be like Houdini and lock mm. himself. But I used to work at a place, we actually didn't call it an elevator, we called it a lift, which I think that's what this one was. It didn't have walls or anything. It would go between floors, but it was just like a platform. Right, like a freight elevator type yeah. thing. 
The basket was crushed and Mitchell's head was badly injured at the time. He was attended by a physician who happened to be in the restaurant. A year and a half ago, Mitchell was injured on the head when an automobile he was driving overturned near Vaughn's Bridge. Also, according to Joseph, James had a poor memory due to another injury he sustained in a fall eight years before the crime. He said James was unable to think clearly or remember things. Joseph said that James still had a bump on his head from that injury, and when Joseph was trying to interview James in his cell, James seemed dazed and in a stupor. On the Tuesday after the murder, Joseph decided to not visit James for the day, hoping that would give James a break and he'd come out of the stupor. Hmm. James reportedly read magazines again all day and ate all the food he was given. Alexander McDonald asked that the details of Lillian's funeral not be printed. He just wanted the family to be able to grieve in private and felt that they'd already had enough publicity. Lillian's mother was still under a doctor's care and her family was still worried that she wouldn't survive if they told her how Lillian was killed and what had happened to her body. Winifred was still asking to see Lillian's body and no one really knew how to break the news that there was no body. Mm. Lillian's funeral was held on Wednesday at Sacred Heart Church in Portland. She was buried at Cavalry Cemetery in South Portland, which is a the Catholic cemetery. Only Lillian's immediate family attended the service. Her mother, Winifred, was too ill to attend the funeral, which is kind of sad. James was still acting disinterested in his own fate. His lawyer, Joseph Connellan, said, if he is guilty of the murder, you would never know it from his manner. He seems to want to read a great deal. He appears to be at ease and seems contented. He still maintains that he is unable to recall having made any confession. On July 22nd, a little over a week after the murder, the Bangor Daily News had an editorial in response to one in the Boston Herald, which I didn't read. It read, the Boston Herald calls upon all the authorities in Maine, from Governor Gardner down the line, to have Mitchell, the Portland youth charged with the murder of Lillian McDonald, indicted, tried, and sentenced right away without waiting a month as will be necessary in the ordinary course of legal affairs. Well-meant advice, of course, but not needed. Maine does these things in her own way, and her way positively shines in comparison with that of Massachusetts. So there. And from what I read, it wasn't like it is today where there's your initial appearance and you get arraigned and then things go along. It was like a term that would start. They had to wait till the beginning of September for that term for him to be arraigned. On August 14th, a month after Lillian's body was found, a lawsuit was filed against Lauren Short and Harmon. The suit was brought by Alexander McDonald, Lillian's father, and Andy Von Vilas, a friend of the family. Their lawyer was George Gillen of the firm Gillen and Bartlett. The suit was based on Maine laws that hold a master is in charge of the welfare of his servants and that the master should have some knowledge of his employee's reputation. I tried to find out the disposition of this lawsuit, but I could not find it anywhere that it was mentioned. Lots oh, of times have... when a suit is settled, you never know about oh, it. Oh, that's true, too. It's not public information. About a week later, Joseph Connellan said he would petition the court to send James Mitchell to the mental hospital in Augusta for a psychiatric examination. Mm. He wanted to see if James would be considered legally insane. James was not scheduled to be arraigned until the September term started, and it was suggested the mental exam wait until then. 
The Bangor Daily News opined, as expected, an attempt will be made to show that James M. Mitchell, slayer of the Portland girl <laughs> clerk, Lillian McDonald, is crazy. His lawyer is preparing a petition to the court asking that the prisoner be committed to the Augusta State Hospital for observation. Too bad his craziness passed unnoticed until he committed one mm-hmm. of the ghastliest crimes in the history of Maine. <laughs> I don't know who was on the editorial <laughs> board at the Bangor Daily News, but they were quite testy. On September 2nd, the grand jury was sworn in. Among the cases they would hear was the murder charge against James Mitchell. Oh, that's what it is. The grand jury wasn't seated. That's why. And according to the newspaper, they met every, it was the same jury and they would meet for 10 right. days and then they. Yeah, then I they was on one yeah. in New Hampshire and it was similar. On September 5th, 1930, Justice James Hudson granted the petition for James Mitchell to be sent to the state mental hospital for observation. Attorney Connellan assured the judge that he was not trying to delay the trial, but he wanted James tested to see if an insanity plea was appropriate. County attorney Ralph Ingalls didn't oppose the petition, although he said he wasn't for or against it. While James was up at Am High, as we called it, I don't think they called it that, that then, no. getting tested, the grand jury returned an indictment against him for murder on September 11th. September 24th, James was back in Portland. Ralph Ingalls told reporters, I will say this for publication. I have had a communication from Dr. Forrest C. Tyson of the Augusta State Hospital that Mitchell has no mental disorder. Joseph Conlon told the press, I have received the same report that you got, and I understand Mr. Mitchell is to be brought back today. The next move will be to get in touch with him and decide what is to be done and what procedure is to be taken. This will be determined by noon tomorrow. And it didn't take long. On Thursday afternoon, September 25th, 1930, so the next day, James Mitchell pled guilty to the murder of Lillian McDonald. It took about seven minutes in court, according to the Evening Express. James was brought into the courtroom at 2.28 p.m. The judge came in a few minutes later, and by 3.35, James was being led out of the courtroom on the way to Thomaston Prison. Although the defense and prosecution were frequently meeting to discuss matters, the guilty plea was surprising to observers. The county attorney, Ralph Ingalls, wanted the court to know that there was no evidence that criminal assault had been committed or attempted on Lillian before she was killed. But as we've often said, no evidence doesn't mean it didn't happen. Right. And also her body was just bones. It so was bones. There was no, that's would... why there was no evidence. Right. I don't know why he said that in court because it had been reported that James confessed to it, but rape didn't seem to be part of the charges. So maybe he just wanted to clarify. Maybe he had to clarify it for some right that reason. he wasn't being charged with rape yes. because the there was no evidence. There was no evidence. Right. Ralph complimented Joseph Connellan on his handling of the McDonald murder case. Judge Hudson agreed. It's like, well, geez, I love. Yeah, this. thanks for handing a, over a guilty plea to us. Joseph addressed the court. My duty in this important matter is plain to me. My client is pleading guilty. That was my advice after his narrative to me was completed today. There is no defense in fact, and I shall not be a party to manufacturing one. I take this to mean that James admitted to his lawyer that he killed Lillian. And we should ask Matt if we ever talk to him again. But I Mm. think that if a defendant tells their lawyer that they're guilty... That puts the lawyer in a tough spot. None of James's family appeared to be in court that day. Again, James stared straight ahead as he stood in the prisoner's dock. 
Judge Hudson said, it is a grave and solemn duty that the court has to perform today. I concur with county attorney and what he has said about attorney Connellan's handling of the case. I shall always feel that this respondent has been ably represented. I feel that this respondent has had full protection as far as he has been able to receive in this court. And with that, James Mitchell was sentenced to the rest of his natural life in prison. James was assigned to a cell in the East Wing of Thomaston Prison. His work detail was to be in the woodworking shop. Warden George Buker said that James acted as if he didn't know what it was all about. Maybe he was still in a stupor. In 1934, James was back in the news. On July 20th, James and two of his fellow inmates escaped Thomaston. On Friday night, July 20th, the three men, James, Archie Letalien, and Alan Twitchell, used a handmade ladder to scale the wall of the prison and took off into the woods. Archie Letalien was from Lewiston and had been sentenced to life in 1925. Alan Twitchell was from Troy, Maine, and had been sentenced to life in 1922. Like James, the two other men were convicted murderers. The men took off during one of the worst thunderstorms of the year. It was about 8.30 p.m. They were noticed missing at the 9 o'clock bed check. The electricity had gone out in the town, so there was complete darkness. And I'm assuming that the prison either had its own electric source or a generator because the prison didn't lose power, but the town right. of Thomaston did. The three stayed together, walking west on the main central railroad tracks towards Waldeboro. Police figured the prisoners would probably follow the tracks since it was the fastest way to get away from the prison by foot. There was a spot about 15 miles from the prison where a new overpass for U.S. Route 1 crossed over the track. Sure enough, shortly before dawn, searchers, including county sheriff's department and state police officers, as well as volunteers and prison guards, spotted three men walking along the tracks. The police pointed guns and ordered the three to stop, but instead they ran into the woods as shots rang out. Alan Twitchell walked, quote, right into the arms of four civilian volunteers who were helping out the police. Alan was the one who made the ladder. He was said to be an expert carpenter and he ran the wood shop. He was also armed with a knife he'd fashioned in the wood shop, but he surrendered without a fight. The search party had been tired and damp from a rainy night of searching, but rallied at the capture of Allen. Not long after that, a volunteer searcher, who was the Rockland correspondent for the Evening Express, Earl Dow, saw a man's head and shoulders in the bushes. Earl was armed and fired his pistol to signal the other searchers. Then he went after the guy. He found Archie Letalian lying face down in the bushes. At first, Archie refused to move, but he eventually gave in. Both escapees were shackled and returned to prison. The search party was sure they'd find James pretty soon after that. Archie Letalian was considered the brains of the three. He was the editor of the prison magazine Vox and the manager of the prison baseball team. One of the articles I read raved about what a great writer he was. Hmm. But both James and Archie were city boys. Alan Twitchell was the one who grew up in the woods hunting and fishing and tracking. He was the one they would rely on to help them through the woods. James was young and not experienced in outdoor life. He was sure to be found soon, they thought. The searchers thought James might be wounded by gunfire. And on Sunday, it was reported that he was surrounded in the woods around Waldeboro. On Monday morning, newspapers reported that the search for James had shifted to Boothbam, Wiscasset, which are about 35 miles away from the prison. Police said there were two spottings in that area. Oh, and also people thought he was in Portland. And then they shot at three kids that they thought were the men mm. who were oh, not Jesus. in Portland. Mm. Police shot at three kids. Jesus Christ. Um, 
but he wasn't in Booth Bay or Wiscasset. On his way to work Monday, Clarence Hilt of Walderboro was driving down Route 1 and he saw someone lying in the grass next to the road. He went to the Walderboro garage where he worked and got his co-worker, Ralph Moss, and the two went back to investigate. The guy was still there and they recognized him as the escaped convict. He was weak with hunger and overexposure. When they ordered him to get into the car, he obeyed. The two men drove James back to the prison and arrived before 9 a.m. James was immediately put into solitary confinement. He said he hadn't eaten since his escape. James settled back into prison life, but tried to escape again in 1940. What did he have to lose? It was just about 10 years after his arrest. About midnight, July 16, 1940. It's funny how these are all in July. Prison guard Roy Burton looked out the window and saw James Mitchell trying to unlock a car in the parking lot outside prison walls. Roy sounded the alarm and guard Milo McClellan approached James, gun drawn. I'll be good, James said as he was taken into custody. The car James was trying to steal belonged to a guard named George Buzzell, or Buzzle. That's a main name. Mm -hmm. About 10 days prior, a set of George's car keys disappeared. He changed the locks on his car and got new keys. And I don't think that's even possible today. (laughs) James had planned his escape pretty well. First of all, he made a key which he spent hours making, that worked in the lock of Deputy Warden Stanley McGowan's office door. James' prison job at the time was a radio repairman, so he had tools that allowed him to make a key, like metalworking tools and stuff. You know, that's the problem. They have all this time on their right. hands. They used to work on the farm, and that probably some of I them know. did back then. And then and they escaped their food from there, too. Look at uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Once he got into the office, he was able to get other keys that allowed him to get a flashlight and a ladder, and he slipped out. He hid in the woods all day. It doesn't specify in the article, but I think he did it like either the night or early morning before. He hid in the woods all day and he heard a dog bang and he knew they were looking for him. He retraced his steps to Route 1, hoping the dirt and debris thrown up by traffic would confuse the dog. His plan worked because the dog named Lady, but they don't say the breed. Anyway, Lady sniffed She like followed the trail from the woods to route one. And then she just kept circling around back to the woods and route one. She was very confused. And by the way, the prison, Thomaston prison was like feet from route one anyway. I mean, but most prisoners probably would go away from route one because, you know, the cops would be there. Prison officials thought James must have found George Bazell's keys somewhere and waited until George was on night duty so James could escape or he stole them. Right. At the time of James' first escape, it was reported that there were no guards on the walls at night. And I wonder if this was still true six years later. It wouldn't surprise me. It doesn't seem to matter to them when someone escapes. But that might be one of the reasons it was easy for him to slip out. The last time James made the news was when he was released on parole in November of 1959. He had served less than 30 years of his life term. Wow. This is from an article by Richard Marsh, and I'm just going to read it because it has all the information and the tone of it's kind of angry, and I kind of liked it. Murderer of local girl is released from prison. Official silence surrounds freeing of J.M. Mitchell. A man who raped, murdered, and then cremated a co-worker in a local stationery store 29 years ago has been released from Maine State Prison at Thomaston. Officials attempted to suppress news of the release of James M. Mitchell, 50, even after it had been printed in Boston and New York papers. 
Mitchell is now working in the Lewiston-Auburn area after being released Monday from the prison from which he twice escaped. Maynard C. Doloff, chairman of the State Probation and Parole Board, and John J. Shea, director of the Division of Probation and Parole, refused to discuss the case and initially refused to confirm that Mitchell had been released. He'll do better if he goes back to society without fanfare, Shea said. Hmm. Doloff was asked if he knew where Mitchell was. Frankly, I don't know, he answered. He's in the state, Doloff admitted. We don't have any reason for it, meaning the release. The probation and parole board had said of the group's decision to free Mitchell. Both Shea and Doloff claim they are prevented by law from saying anything about the case. But it was only a month ago that they discussed the case of Paul N. Dwyer when he was released from a life term. And that's the end of that the article. Paul Dwyer is one of our episodes, too, but I don't know which one. As for his two prison escape attempts, and this is me talking, that's not the article. The warden told the newspapers that James wasn't charged for either of them because he was serving a life term. So why charge him? Now, See, that's just the, crazy. Let me quote the article again. Prison warden Alan L. Robbins said today that Mitchell was never sentenced for that escape because he was already serving a life term. Mitchell served 30 years with time off for good behavior, which amounted to 25 years in prison, Robbins said. The warden said that Mitchell was a good inmate and a very good craftsman in furniture making. Robbins also said he frowned on giving out the names of released prisoners unless the press has some prior knowledge of the action. Robbins did say, however, that Mitchell was met at the prison gates by his employer. And this is me again. The Lewiston papers also reported on James' release and said that he was reportedly working in the area, but they didn't know where. Lillian's family was not interviewed for stories about James' parole, which today they would have been at great length. Obviously, her folks were probably dead, but her two sisters were probably still alive and perhaps nieces and nephews or people. I tried to find out what happened to James Mitchell after he left prison, but he is a common name. And he was a private citizen by then. I could never be sure if anything I read was about him. There was a James M. Mitchell that got married that was kind of the same age, but he could have changed his name. He right. didn't reoffend, or if he did, he didn't get caught. Loring Short and Harmon moved to Middle Street sometime in the 1980s, and then they were sold to Boise Cascade in 1996 and went out of business. And that's mm. my story. So, do you, I can just. You- no, I haven't. Not at all. First of all, I'm skeptical that he had all those head injuries that his attorney claimed because he wouldn't have been able to have functioned if they affected him. efficient and great. Right. And he wouldn't have been able to have functioned in his job at Loring Shore and Harmon and he wouldn't have been able to do radio repair. He wouldn't have had the focus to read all the time. I know. He was reading all the time. Like if you have traumatic brain injury or CTE, you know, the thing that all the football players get, your ability to focus is impaired and stuff. I also think I'm not an advocate, and I don't want to go into a whole big long thing of it, of super long sentences, but... I do think if life isn't true life, and I think they've changed it now with truth and sentencing laws and stuff. When I was saying he didn't have anything to lose by escaping, my assumption was he was true life. And I think a lot of people think would think And you'd think the warden would know the difference that the whole incentive to keep guys from escaping and stuff is like, well, we're going to tack 10 more years on. 
I know. I mean, and I they didn't remember. do anything about it. It's, it's, so it's like this catch-22. They don't charge him because he's in for life. But then the parole board lets him out because, hey, he was a model prisoner. Well, he escaped twice and it was in all the papers. I know. I know. Uh, so it's I like know. how it's like they just didn't give a shit. And they didn't. And, and I don't the think they out. care. Especially because they kept saying it was such an atrocious, the worst crime and. Oh, I was going to say the way I heard about this was actually on Facebook. The main memory network had a, there's a photograph of the furnace with a, a notice on it. Do not use by order of county attorney. But yeah, I think that part of it is that it's just, it was a crime against a woman. Right. But I also think that there was no reason for him to do what he did, except that he had the opportunity. Mm-hmm. She was someone who was friendly to him. Mm-hmm. They might've flirted, who knows? Not that that means that she deserved any. She might have liked him and thought he was nice, but he clearly wanted to rape her. And I do believe that he probably raped her. And I I think he may have even planned it. Oh, when she comes around with the paychecks, I'm here in the boiler room. Nobody else is around. I mean, not plan to murder her necessarily. Maybe get something. Yeah. And a lot of murders of women happen because the guy rapes her and he's like, oh shit, now I'm going to be in trouble. I better kill her too. Well, there's been a couple places I've worked where there's been inappropriate behavior and flashing and stuff in the storeroom or in the warehouse area where other people don't see it. So it's not like like it's something that would be, you know, oh, what if someone walks in? Well, probably no one ever went into the boiler room, especially in July. And also guys could get away a lot with that and even things people wouldn't have mentioned to the reporters or the police afterwards but anyways i thought it was interesting it was interesting i like those old because i always see things when i'm looking up something in the 1930s all sorts of shit was happening and also like almost every day there's some story about a pilot like everyone was flying all the time Mm, yeah Um, i have an old-timey one but i'll save it because we don't want to do them all at once okay so you must have a NNW. I do. <laughs> okay, my NNW is of a documentary, Meltdown, Three Mile Island, Ooh. which I watched on Netflix. It's a four-episode documentary by Keith Davidson. It's for Pete people who Davidson, sorry. Keith, K-I-E-F, Davidson. And why did you say Pete? I hate him so much. And now <laughs> you're making me think of him when I wasn't thinking about him at all. Because I rarely do. But okay, I really do hate him. And for people who aren't aware, because apparently you're not, because when I looked on IMDB to see who made this documentary, one of the questions was, is this a true story? And first uh-huh. of all, it's a fucking documentary, you fucking moron. <laughs> you kids may not remember things, but in the 70s, during the very brief age of nuclear power, Three Mile Island was a nuclear power plant on an island in the Shenandoah River in Pennsylvania that had a big accident. And the irony, and they mentioned this in the documentary, the movie The China Syndrome. I remember, yeah. It came out two weeks yes. before three mile island happened i can't remember if i saw it before three mile island or if it hadn't come to augusta yet and i saw it after i do know i saw it as soon as possible because i'm a huge jack lemon fan it also had jane fonda michael douglas i do remember not only is it very similar to what happened in real life in a lot of ways but at one point in the movie was obviously maybe before this happened they said like this when this if this plant melts down it could 
create a crater the size of the state of Pennsylvania. And um, everybody's like, ah, because Three Mile Island was in Pennsylvania. And one last thing, China syndrome is because theoretically a nuclear reactor that melts down can get so hot that it would melt through the earth all the way to China, which scientists know China. doesn't really happen. <laughs> but, it, you know, it's the kind of thing. Now, what were you going to say? I was going to say that I remember seeing the movie. And I think we went to Waterville to see it. And yeah. it was after because when that line came up, everyone was Everybody like, Everybody ah. was like, aha, Pennsylvania. That's so anyway, this is a documentary about that. Was it a true story? Yeah, almost. Ooh. Well, bad reenactments. I'm taking away half a point because I had intended several times to watch this and then I would start, and it literally starts with a reenactment mm. of a little girl looking out her living room window at Three Mile Island. And I'm like, I am not going to watch a fucking documentary <laughs> about Three Mile Island that starts with a reenactment, but I finally did watch it. There are reenactments that are necessary because they're showing things that happened in the plant and what was going on in the plant that they wouldn't have on film and it's better to act it out. The ones with like kids and stuff are not necessary. Like this one young woman, she was six when it happened. She lived across. There was... Her house, the street, the river, and then the island with the plant, power mm -hmm. plant looming over. And uh, she's one of the people who talks through it. So some of the reenactments were necessary. The ones with kids, and it's kind of annoying because it happened in February 1979. Then they show these kids in school, and the trees are all leafy. It's like summer. And it's like, no, it's Pennsylvania in February. And also, it's kind of annoying because the kids in school, they looked more like kids from the 50s. I mean, people were fairly groovy by 1979. Yeah. So anyway, so I'm taking away minus five. As I said, some of the reenactments were good and they were necessary. And they did try to look like the 70s when it was the adults. And they actually made the people try to look like the people in real life. So they're not really annoying, but I am taking away half a point because I think some were unnecessary. As I've said many times before, when people are telling their own story and it's traumatic, you don't need a reenactment. You just show the person telling their story or photographs from them or yes. something, and that's good enough. Narrative cliches, it does do the whole thing where the people walk in and like say something to the director or cameraman and sit down, and uh, but the, I, which I'm so now. fucking sick of, but I'm not taking points off. I want to say, too, that when I watched this, I wasn't planning to do an NNW. Then I forgot it and I didn't watch it a second time. So I didn't take any notes on it. So okay. there may be things wrong that I'm not remembering. But I <laughs> And I looked through my texts to see if I, because I did text you about it while I was watching it. But my texts only go back two weeks. They used to go back farther. So oh, I don't that's know what, weird. Yeah. Sometimes you can search though. Anyway, uh, I did search. You know, I would have had to have said some keywords. Like I searched for NNW and found one about it. But then when I tried to oh, scroll, I, it wouldn't. Anyway, racial gender obtuseness, none that I can remember that would have been enough for me to remember now. Because it was like two weeks ago I watched this. Lack of good visuals. Once things started happening, there was a lot of video. There was a lot of news coverage. So there are good visuals. So I'm not taking anything away. Missing pieces, I'm taking away a point. It starts fairly quickly with the accident at the plant. And they use reenactments and stuff. And the guys in the plant didn't know what was going on. It wasn't clear to me 
I think if they should have spelled out more what the problem was, why these guys weren't trained enough to understand what was going on. There's a lot of people kind of explaining, talking heads explaining it and stuff, but I'm not a nuclear physicist or anything close. It seemed in some ways almost too simplistic and in some ways not enough information or gaps in the information. It could have been more dramatic. I mean, it's obvious these guys don't know what's going on. And they don't find out the how really horrible and how close Pennsylvania came to melting down until much, much later. But there needed to be more of what exactly was going on in the plant, who went where and did what, and whose job was what and yeah. why. It explained a little better. Maybe if they'd had graphics. I was just thinking that. that like been they do have graphics later. But the drama of the meltdown of the plant was more like, oh, no, we don't know what's going on. Uh, nobody knows what's going on. We're pushing buttons, but we don't know what's going on. It needed to be more detailed and informative. Yeah. The thing, and I'll get into a little bit this morning, is storytelling. But very interestingly, the documentary changes about halfway through to a whistleblower story because there was a nuclear engineer that came to help with the cleanup that realized that the company that owned the power plant had rushed some things and done some things Mm. wrong. And we're also doing that during the cleanup. And it reminded me, I've just seen recently another documentary downfall about Boeing, their 747s or 777s or whatever blowing up and that they knew that there was a problem. They didn't fix it. And this was similar and it does a very good job with the whistleblower story. But again, it's not clear on specifics. Like there's one point when they have a camera going down a year or two after the meltdown into the reactor. And it's like, whoa, this stuff is melted. And it almost happened so fast. I'm like, wait, what What are they showing? What just happened there? And they don't explain enough. And and I, I don't know enough about a nuclear yeah. reactor to know if what I'm seeing is something really awful or bad or not. And so they needed to explain that stuff more. There were timeline issues that I found confusing after the meltdown and when they were doing the cleanup and stuff. And another thing I'm putting in missing pieces. So the people in the town, this is 1979, apparently had no clue about the dangers of nuclear power. And there was like an anti-nuclear group, kind of like the Clamshell Alliance here in Maine. Mm-hmm. And as a kid, all we ever heard here in Maine, because they're building yeah. um, Yankee Maine Yankee, was yeah. Clamshell Alliance, Clamshell Alliance, nuclear power, bad, we're all going to blow up, we're all going to melt yes. down Clamshell Alliance. And that started in the mid-70s. Yeah. So this is 1979. And there was one group, but like all these people who lived in this town, Middletown, Middleton, Pennsylvania, this kind of working class, little blue collar, middle of the nowhere Pennsylvania town, had no clue, no clue how dangerous nuclear power could be. And one of my beliefs, although they didn't get into it enough, is that the coal industry was dying. This was a coal mining town, and they shoved this down people's throats like here. I'm the sure they did. But you would have had to live in a fucking empty mine shaft to not know about the dangers of nuclear power because we were kids and but we, we believed it. And if we believed believed in the science part of it or we believed what we were hearing, but I'm just saying they might have 
just thought it was well when it fucking melted you know, down they started i know to what it. you're but i'm trying no, to explain no but what, what i'm what i'm saying is the people in this documentary who later became activists because everybody's getting cancer and shit after this meltdown were like we didn't know it was dangerous we had no idea it was dangerous you know and i'm like sorry i know you were a housewife with like four kids and it was the 1970s but I had to it somehow just because it was being talked about. How do yeah. you not know yeah, I that? And I'm not saying, oh, nuclear power is bad and dangerous, but I'm saying, how do you not know that this type of thing is what everybody was that could possibly happen? And that's why nobody wants that fucking three mile island outside of their living room window. So that uh, was, some people are trying to bring it back, though. They're trying to. I understand that. Uh, OK, I'm sorry. I'm just saying that that was a missing piece yes. in this okay. documentary. Okay. And the documentary isn't this scary, oh, nuclear power is bad. And it points out Jimmy Carter, who was president at the time, was a nuclear engineer. The whistleblower guy is also a nuclear engineer. Both of them highly believe in nuclear power and how effective it could be. And I think a lot of people, it's clean power. The problem is radiation is forever. Look at Chernobyl. Yeah. One of the issues with the whistleblower, as always happens with things like this, first of all, the guys before the meltdown were not well trained. And the the danger that this kind of thing could happen was not only glossed over by the owners, but nobody was trained to handle this kind of thing because training people to handle this kind of thing would be an admission that this kind of thing Yes, could that it could happen. So, yeah. so once again, they're playing with people's lives. And to me, that says the fears about nuclear power are valid. Because greedy, money-grubbing people who apparently don't care if there's a crater the size of Pennsylvania in the middle of the United States and that people two, three generations later are still getting cancer because of this and stuff. They just want to make money and do their stuff. And and in fact, one good thing is there's a, the villain, this fish face guy, a spokesman for the company who was after the cleanup was at the site and he's just... Well, you know, people have concerns, but then somebody else tells me it's not a concern, so I dismiss it. There's no time to listen to people with their concerns. And he's almost like a caricature like Dan Aykroyd on inaccuracies and anachronisms. I believe there were some anachronisms in the reenactments, but again, I wasn't taking notes, so I'm not going to take away points because I could be remembering wrong. They did try hard to make it look like people in the 70s. And I hate it, though, when you have... Like, you can tell the guy's wearing, like, a 70s hairdo wig. And it's like, can't you just have the guy grow sideburns for the reenactment and instead of putting a wig and a fake mustache on somebody? Storytelling, despite the missing pieces I mentioned, the storytelling was very, very good. There could have been more drama inside the plant, the China Syndrome. And, of course, they had to show scenes from the China Syndrome. And I'm like, instead of showing scenes from the China Syndrome, why don't you do a better job of dramatizing what's happening in the real? I know, because um, But despite that, the storytelling was very good. And then when it gets to the guy rick who was the whistleblower he was a nuclear engineer and he had two young sons and his wife had just died around the time of three mile island so he was asked to go and be part of the cleanup effort and he agreed to it so he and his boys moved to middletown pennsylvania and so that's this neat story sideline i don't want to spoil too much and he's a big believer in nuclear power but he cannot because 
during the cleanup, dangerous things are happening and things are being overlooked and things are being covered up and he can't abide by that. And his life is actually in danger. And he's like, if I don't do something, this can melt down, whatever. Like, I like disaster stories anyways, especially man-made, somebody fucked up and they're greedy and evil. And of course, mm -hmm. the greedy evil guy on this is so classically there's right. nothing about him to like so it's great but it turns into this kind of heroic whistleblower thing and that guy is very good and effective although they do have one of those things i hate on these where the people oh i haven't seen you in 40 years blah 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 and i'm like that should be private and not on film and he tells his story very well i think he may have been involved in the production of the documentary freshness yes it's a topic you don't see very often, both nuclear power, Three Mile Island, the way yeah. it's told is fresh. It could have been a schlocky one hour Discovery Plus type documentary and instead it's a Netflix quality four hour yeah. documentary. You know, I mentioned somebody on IMDB is like, ooh, did this really happen? To me, it's such an iconic moment of the 70s that it surprises me that people don't know about I know. it. And I know people say, well, I wasn't born then, but I know about things that happened in the 40s and 50s and I wasn't born then. And I, I don't know, maybe people just... It's almost like it's it's not something that comes up a lot like other, thi other right, things that right. happen, which is kind of weird. And but... watching this, you see how it really should. I mean, not only is there the issue of the long-term health effects on the people, yeah. but... It came out later that it came much, much closer to being Chernobyl than people realize. And Chernobyl only happened seven years later. Years. And if you don't know, listeners, what Chernobyl is, Google it. And shame on you. But no repetition that I can remember. No beating the drum mm. that I can remember. So that's an 8.5. I highly oh. recommend it, even if people think... A uh, meltdown of a nuclear power plant in Pennsylvania. That sounds boring. It's very engaging. It was the kind of thing where I'm like, okay, I'll watch one episode, then go to bed. And I ended up watching three. And then I'm like, oh, I really have to go to bed. And um, then watch the other one. But I didn't want to stop watching it. It was... Ooh, Dad and I, well, he likes those yeah. Netflix documentaries. Yeah. I also recommend the same type of thing, Downfall. The Downfall of Boeing episode thing, which is a similar thing where... Because these Boeing 777s crashed, because it wasn't first world white countries where these planes crashed and killed hundreds of people, they blamed it on pilot error and all this stuff. And it, it turns out there was a fundamental issue with oh, the yeah. airplanes that people at the Boeing plant in Seattle were saying, we can't do this. There's a problem with these. This thing overrides it and makes the nose dip down and the pilot can't override it and the plane crashes. Uh, yeah, I like the ones where there's just greedy, horrible people putting other people's <laughs> lives at risk so they can just make money and have power whistleblowers who are treated like shit which is kind of like a lot of the formula of a lot of movies where you're like oh come on but it does happen right as i said that's an eight and a half it's on netflix oh, i highly I recommend it. it it's called meltdown three mile island whether you're familiar with three mile island or not it's a good documentary to watch that's the thing about nuclear power and i know in europe i think that's what like france i mean that's what they yeah, use they're massive ones in the uk too massive that's always been the issue you have that, to keep the reactor cool 
And you have to... When it fucks up, it fucks up big right. time. And, you, and that radiation is very difficult. Like, all the decommissioned plants, like here in the Northeast, there's one in Massachusetts or Rhode Island I was just reading about recently and stuff. They have this waste that yeah. they can't do anything with. Those rods. You know? And Maine has it, too. Yeah. Too bad there isn't some renewable energy source like the <laughs> sun or something that you could... The wind? Except for the problem is nobody can own those and make money and no one can. so anyway Thank i guess you. that's i, I guess will be that's looking it forward to watching that yeah and now we look forward to our next episode yep it's gonna be it's no big surprise finally gerald goodell part two almost two, two years after part one the janet brochu saga and um we're still on our crime stuff is still on twitter but i it's very it's very difficult i haven't used yeah, it that I'm much not, I'm I'm deactivated like, my personal account after 13 years because I'm just it's just there's no worth, point. I can't I, get the information I want and there's we're trying this, to make our Instagram more robust for yeah. people and we're always there on Facebook but, but yeah we're trying to find alternatives to um but the thing is there's a lot of people that have tried to start things like it and the, right. they don't take off but you can't recreate now that it sucks so bad it's like trying to recreate Woodstock it sucks I mean I know it's it like, sucks well they were just like, talking like on msnbc the other morning they were saying on morning joe they were saying the same thing that they said we used to go there for news you could follow certain things and go there for news and now it's just so full of crap and it's stuff that is of no interest right to me. we put crime and stuff on there yeah to promote the podcast so people can find it and see it and pick it up but it's not like we're scrolling through looking at a lot of other stuff we used to see a lot of other podcasters and things and, see, and like on my own i had news things that i followed and i used to love room raider and stuff I know. and i hope room raider goes somewhere better because i miss them but i can't it's just all this crap know. and you can't even find your way through the crap to no. the stuff you want yeah. but anyway so i guess we should say good night yes okay good night everybody good night everybody thank you see you in a couple weeks oh wait, you're pregnant wait. <laughs> that wouldn't be positive news yeah. stack up on those abortion pills actually yeah. i'd probably make a lot of money since i'm going to be 62 years old in less than a week nice. because i think it would be a record age pregnancy no, especially I, think since I, I there's no possible way i you know i haven't been anywhere near okay. that i know of in a long time but and i happily so i might add it's not a sad thing in my life